0: To me, it's absolutely legendary terrain. It's a 1,000 feet of sustained vert, 16 name chutes between 40 and 55 degrees, lift served in bounds, and ultimately indescribable on a powder day. You know, you could hear the hoops and hollers from my office, really, of folks enjoying the chutes, and opening them really put us on the map. Welcome to Storm! Your host,
1: Stuart Winchester, back to Tahoe today as we continue the storm's coverage of all of America's great ski regions. Before we get there, if you are a paid subscriber to the Storm Skiing Journal and Podcast, I want you to know that you have access to this podcast seven full days before free subscribers. And I want to thank you very much for that support. If you are not a paid subscriber, I get it. We all have budgets and we all have decisions to make and none of us can buy everything. I do want you to know, however, that if you decide to upgrade to a paid Storm subscription, not only will you get podcasts a full week in advance of when you're hearing them now, but you will also get everything below the paywall in the Storm Skiing Journal, which frankly is about 80% of the content, and you know you will get frequent quality content. I guarantee 100 full articles every single year not clickbait headlines or four-paragraph missives. Your investment will directly support independent ski journalism, which is something that, frankly, we have far too little of these days. If you're not quite ready to step up to the paid tier yet, you can still subscribe to the free tier at StormSkiing.com. Before we get to Mount Rose, a quick word from my partner, Profile Search International. Coming off a second consecutive season of record attendance, the ski industry has never been more competitive and neither has the war for the best talent. How will you ensure that your organization is positioned to compete with the best and deliver results to your customers and stakeholders? Profile Search International is the only executive search and recruitment firm in the world that is 100% focused on the ski industry, they have placed hundreds of leaders in roles that truly drive results at the best and most progressive ski areas for more than 30 years. Profile Search International uses their intimate understanding of skiing and related industries and of the candidates worldwide to align talent with your needs and goals. With offices in the US and Canada, Profile Search International finds and negotiates with the right leaders for your team. Reach out to them directly at ProfileSearch.com or contact them by phone or email or send me a note and I will forward it on to the amped up and ready to charge team at Profile Search International. That's ProfileSearch.com. Episode 156, Greg Gavrilette's. General Manager of Mount Rose, Nevada. You know what's great about the Epic and Icon Passes? They make it really easy and really affordable to ski as often as you want and at more mountains than most of us could ever reasonably need. You know what's not great about the Epic and Icon Passes? Just about everyone has one, which means that the majority of skier visits are hitting the same 50 big-name resorts across America. Which is why, for the past four years, I've been repeating some form of this mantra. Find somewhere else to ski. I love Epic and Icon Mountains, but there are plenty of big, fun, varied ski areas that are not on the national destination circuit, but give you just as good of a ski day as Heavenly or Palisades Tahoe. Mount Rose could be my Exhibit A here. It's big. It's easy to get to. It has a terrific lift system and it collects snow like a squirrel hoarding nuts. And yet, most skiers outside of Reno have never heard of the place. Why? Because Mount Rose is a true independent. No pass affiliations, no reciprocal deals. So, what has allowed Mount Rose to ignore the biggest trend in skiing? Because Mount Rose is proof that, if you take care of the skiing and offer a good experience, the business part of it will take care of itself. Let's go. My guest today is in his second full season as general manager of Mount Rose, Nevada. With a base elevation of 8,260 feet, Mount Rose owns the highest base of any ski area in the Lake Tahoe region and is often the first to open for the season as a result. The ski area covers more than 1,200 acres of terrain on an 1,800 foot vertical drop served by eight lifts including two high-speed six-packs and a high-speed quad. The ski area averages 350 inches of snow per winter, but scored 668 inches during the 2022-23 ski season. Prior to joining Mount Rose last year, he worked for Vail Resorts and Peak Resorts for eight years, spending time at Paoli Peaks, Indiana, Hidden Valley, Missouri, and most recently, at new hampshire he also spent 10 years at over mountain in tennessee greg gaverlet is my guest greg welcome to the storm awesome to have you i am so glad we could finally make this one happen how are you doing on this november monday
0: hey Stuart. i'm doing great and thank you so much for having me on the podcast um Been a long time listener and really cool to be on here.
1: I appreciate you saying that, Greg. You know, once again, Mount Rose was the first ski area to open in the Tahoe region for the 2023 to 24 ski season, spinning the lifts on November 10th, which is remarkable. How is Mount Rose able to beat all these other competitors around you, which are some really well known, really world class ski areas? How is Rose able to be the first to open, even with all those high-powered neighbors, every single season?
0: Yeah, certainly. I think you, uh, you mentioned the answer in your intro. You know, a lot of it starts with our base elevation of 8260. Um, you know, it is the highest base elevation for reference in the Tahoe area. Um, we kind of say that our parking lot starts at the top of KT22 for kind of visual purposes. And that really right. helps. It gets, you know, we get a little bit lower temperature, a little bit better weather patterns as a result. Um, but that's not it, you know. Our snowmaking system has been built out over the years uh, very smartly on key opening trails. You know, our lift configuration really helps, especially with the new Lakeview lift. That's the one that we spun this year for opening day. And then a lot of kind of off-season preparation. You know, one of the things that the team here did before my arrival was summer grooming basically every single key trail. So removing rocks, stumps, trees. So it kind of reminds me a lot of Hidden Valley in the Midwest where we operated right. on a golf course, except there's no grass right. here. But very similar to where you don't need a lot of snowpack to get open. You know, water availability and recharge rate plays a big deal in that as well. It's not like the east where you can just have a bunch of big lakes everywhere that you're pulling out of. So we have a 5 million gallon water tank that we installed a couple of years ago that really helps with that end of it. And yeah, ultimately, you know, we like to say we are where the snow is and that showed this year again.
1: So you mentioned the change with the Lakeview chair. Was that the plan, Greg? Did did you when you put in Lakeview and I, and I understand that that chairlift was planned before you took the general manager role. But was that planned that, OK, Lakeview will give us a different opening pattern or did you put the lift in and say, hey, wait a minute this would actually be a really good early season chair. How did all that work?
0: You know, I think a little bit of both. That was certainly probably a consideration in the planning process. But after we reconfigured that lift, you know, we didn't just replace it. We also extended the upper unload up about 70 feet. And, you know, the the lift was called Lake View before, but didn't actually have a view of Lake Tahoe. So it was a bit <laughs> of a misnomer where now as you unload, you have lake views and yeah it just made a lot of sense you know for us northwest is a great lift but there's a section on it called the northwest traverse kind of getting you over 2kc bowl which is fairly tight and it made more sense to kind of open off lake view with bigger wide open runs and then that kind of gives us a little bit more time to lock in that top which is right on the top of the mountain so a little bit more wind exposed a little bit more weather challenge so i think a little bit of both but ultimately you know this season kind of showed that it works and it'll probably be our opening day lift going forward
1: how happy were the locals the longtime folks who are accustomed probably to a different opening pattern do they like the idea Did they like to the change is it mixed feelings are they still getting used to it
0: Every year it's been a little bit different. We've opened, you know, just with our carpet lift before. We've opened just with the Wizard. Uh, We've opened with the old Ponderosa, which was the Wizard reconfigured in a different location. And, you know, yeah, last year opening day was off northwest because Lakeview was still being built. So, yeah, every year is different. I think the sentiment that I've heard is they they appreciate not having to do the traverse. So that's Mm -hmm. that's been good and gives us a chance to show off the new lift for sure. So regardless of what is open,
1: skiers can count on Mount Rose to be open as early as possible every single season. How important is this tradition to Mount Rose, Greg, from a culture and identity point of view?
0: Yeah, it's something that we certainly pride ourselves on, you know, not just getting open, but providing a quality experience from opening day. We're not just opening a carpet or beginner lift. You know, we have a full top to bottom experience of over a thousand vertical feet, and the run is about, oh, about a thousand feet over a mile in length. So it's certainly a quality experience. And for us, getting open early is very important, you know, as an independent resort where can't obviously put a billboard up in the middle of San Francisco or in Times Square or anything like that. But when we get open first, it certainly creates a lot of media buzz and it really sets the expectation that we'll be open for Thanksgiving and gives confidence to our customers that Christmas is going to be a go as well. So especially on the ticket buyer side, it's really important for us to get open and to kind of demonstrate that ski season has started in the Tahoe region. So we're recording this podcast on
1: November 27th, which is the Monday after Thanksgiving weekend. How did that Thanksgiving holiday
0: weekend go for you, Greg? You know, it was great. A lot of different reasons. We um, still have the most open terrain in Tahoe, so that contributed a lot to higher visitation levels. And, you know, we saw a lot more ticket buyers than we did last year, which I think was driven just by that condition and amount of terrain open. But for us, Thanksgiving is really important. Get the team trained get a lot of the kinks out of the system, get people used to a little bit of volume. And we've got a little bit of a lull starting this week, but the holidays are right around the corner and we feel really prepared to deliver a great experience once Christmas rolls around. So nice
1: early open. You pushed the season into late April. Last year, Mount Rose closed on April 30th. Just curious here, thinking about all the attributes the mountain has, that high elevation and the snowmaking system. Could you have stayed open later? Have you discussed keeping Mount Rose open into May. Alpine Meadows stayed open into July, and and there's a couple other around Tahoe that push the season into May. Occasionally, Kirkwood closed May 1st as the Heavenly. Have you, or I think they actually closed a little bit later this past season, have you considered becoming a May operator there?
0: Yeah, it's certainly something that we've done in the past. Um, There's been years that we've gone as late as Memorial Day. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this past season was a little bit different, not just with the amount of snow that we had, but coming out of a very heavy construction season with building the Lakeview Express and getting the multiple trails expansions that we did. So it was really a combination of things, you know, first and foremost, keeping our team in mind. And after an extremely long summer season, followed by a very challenging winter, and then combined with the weather challenges in may may becomes very finicky you know it was interesting i had the same kind of thoughts kind of second guessing myself like did we close too early or did we not and that first weekend in may it was a blowout we wouldn't have been spinning lifts anyway mm-hmm. that weekend okay. and you know ultimately visitation does plummet we or- Kind of interesting with our location, we're right outside of Reno. So even though we're, you know, Western Resort, Big Mountain Skiing, Lake Tahoe, we're still influenced by a lot of that same urban customer patterns that a lot of resorts in the Midwest and the East see, where once spring sports start back up, et cetera, participation really plummets. So I think every year is a little bit different, and we'll certainly look at it on a year-by-year basis. But, you know, our bread and butter is seemingly early season opening and kind of getting the product going right off the bat. So never say never. And, you know, the other thing that we kind of joke around and kind of with our team and really everywhere else I've been is it's kind of interesting early and late season. um, Folks want you to be open so they have the opportunity to come skiing, but few actually do. So it's kind of this interesting (laughs) conundrum of where they want you to be open so they can talk about you, but they're not necessarily going to come out. And we saw those same patterns last year. You know, after Easter, our visitation really plummeted. Do you mostly draw
1: from Reno, Greg, or do you get some folks coming up from California, from Sacramento, from the Bay Area, or or do most of them opt for one of the, other resorts that is a little closer to them on the west side or north side of the lake
0: we draw quite a bit from reno ultimately that is our bread and butter as far as our season pass base goes but no we're certainly tapping into the bay area into sacramento about 20 percent of our visits come from that area and surprisingly we have a couple thousand pass holders that live in the bay area that either have vacation homes up here or you know choose us as a destination i think one of the things that sets us apart is just that proximity of reno so Yes, it's a mountain experience, and you have all the benefits of a medium-sized resort city with plenty of amenities, cheap lodging, um, reasonable dining options, et cetera, et cetera. So we kind of tap from all around. So not not exclusively Reno-based, and certainly on the holidays, most of our ticket buyers are out of the Central Valley and the Bay Area of California. The base of Western ticket pass holders, is that growing over time, Greg? Um. As far as ticket buyers, you mean, or
1: pass holders? Pass holders coming from the Bay Area.
0: Yeah, it's definitely growing. We've, you know, Reno's growing. There's certainly a huge tech exodus out of San Francisco, specifically Mm -hmm. to Reno. We've got Mm -hmm. the Tesla Gigafactory here, which builds all the batteries for them. There's just been a lot of tech moving out. So I think with that kind of trend combined with just our increased marketing chops, so to speak, is, yeah, we we view California as an important market for us and one that we're trying to grow.
1: Do you hear anecdotally from those folks? I guess what I'm getting at here is, are you getting Epic and Icon refugees? Are, Are you getting folks who maybe skied at Palisades or North Star or Heavenly in the past, but those places are getting pretty crowded? Mount Rose staying independent maybe doesn't get the same level of crowds. Are you seeing folks who are over that experience who are looking for something different coming to Mount Rose.
0: Yeah, we certainly see a little bit of that. You know, with our internal surveys, we know that a lot of our pass holders, you know, anywhere from 40 to 50% have passes to other mountains. So mm-hmm. for us, it's kind of always been that way. And yeah, I think especially on the busy you know holiday periods when some of our other competitors are a little bit overloaded, we certainly see folks that stay maybe at North Star, maybe are lodging at Palisades that come over and ski with us for that very reason. So a changing dynamic for sure.
1: You know, you closed at the end of April, but one thing I thought was really cool, Greg, that you did was these late closings on Fridays, staying open till six every Friday after daylight savings time. Was that an experiment? Was that the first year you tried that? And how did that go?
0: Yeah, so it was definitely something new for us. Um, It kind of came out of an event that we've done annually called Sunset Wine and Ski, where we would stay open Mm -hmm. one day in April, late, and kind of have a wine bar at the top. and. When I first got here in 2022, I kind of experienced that sunset wine and ski, and I was just amazed by the amount of people still pulling into our parking lot at 4 p.m. to go skiing for an extra hour. it's mm. kind of a light bulb moment to, hey, I think we've got something here. Let's try it, especially on a Friday. And it worked really well. You know, we were uh, doing a bar at the top of the Lakeview Express lift every Friday afternoon. We had a DJ up there, and it kind of also let us pay tribute to the past In the 90s, we had a gentleman that would basically dig a bunker in the snow at that very location and sell Mm -hmm. beer, hot dogs, put up a bunch of flags. I think we were in Ski Magazine at one point with a picture of that. So trying to recreate a little bit of that mystique, but also give our locals a way to kind of get out of work a little bit early on Friday, come get a few turns in and experience the atmosphere. So it was a stunning success. We'll certainly do it again. And, you know, that location, it's really unique. You've got views of Mount Rose proper across the street. At that time of day, you can see like Tahoe shimmering in the distance, and then you've got views of Reno. So it's a really cool spot on the mountain. And this past summer, we actually built a view deck up there to kind of make that location a little bit more permanent. So in the winter, there's a flat surface now to stand on. And ultimately in the summer for the hiking guests, um, there'll be a really cool platform where they can see the lake. So you
1: did it for six days last season. Sounds like it's coming back for this year. Have you considered expanding it beyond
0: Fridays? Oh, it's certainly something that we're looking at. You know, um, This year, we're going to try to do it a little bit earlier. We did wait till daylight savings time last year, but I think we've got a couple of weeks opportunity with the daylight to do it maybe starting late February. And we're going to try to start a uh, adult race league. So kind of copy in the beer league model from back east uh just kind of with that late afternoon and yeah never say never i think part of it is one getting our guests used to it the other part is getting our team used to it ultimately it does stretch the day out a little bit more and you know in the west we're used to operating 9 to 4 p.m not necessarily 9 10 midnight 3 a.m like back east so it's certainly a lot of operational dynamics are a little bit different as a result
1: do you think that night skiing could work at Mount Rose given its proximity because so that's really what you need for night skiing to work, right? Is proximity to a city and. Given that you're right above Reno, is that something you could do? Light up one lift, maybe Lakeview or something, and run some lights and have a more regular night operation? Is that something that you've ever talked about with the owners?
0: Yeah, that's that's certainly on the idea board and something that we're looking at. You know, not, not quite in the short term, but as we continue to grow, as Reno continues to grow, you know, I think one of the ways you can absorb more visitation is by expanding operating hours. So that would potentially make sense.
1: So your first season, Greg, 668 inches i mean just phenomenal tell us what that was like to live through that kind of season i mean that, that's probably more snow than you got at every skier you ever worked at in all the years you
0: ever worked in skiing combined i mean that's just remarkable <laughs> that's funny because that's exactly what i have written down that yes it was <laughs> more snow than i've experienced in 18 seasons combined previously it was great you know never going to ask for less snow and i Hopefully we can get a repeat of that this season. Um, ultimately, it was, it was really interesting to see. Um, it created a lot of different challenges, um, both from kind of cultural differences to just the resort operating. You know, snow removal becomes super crucial and not just having... The machinery and the folks to remove the snow, but a plan of where to put it so you're not shooting yourself in the foot down the line. Digging out lifts becomes super critical um, and having a team and a plan in place. One of the things I'm most proud of from last year was that there were multiple days that we were the only resort in the basin that had a summit lift spinning. And, Mm. you know, that's just a huge testament to both the infrastructure, the layout, but also to the resiliency of our team and coming in on those storm days and pushing snow and moving snow and getting things ready for that next day. You know, it also led to some challenges with the road. Um, Ultimately, we are at the top of Mount Rose Highway. NDOT does a great job maintaining that road. But during those storm cycles, you never know, is the road going to be open? Is it going to be closed? How are we going to get our staff safely up there? And, you know, one of the other interesting things that I kind of observed my first couple of years is there's this um, reputation of the Sierra cement. And, you mm-hmm. know, I always think beauty is in the eye of the beholder because the biggest difference out here is we shovel with plastic shovels, not not metal okay. ones. So, really, yeah, that's kind of where I was like, Sierra cement, what, what are we talking about here? We're still using <laughs> plastic shovels. So it's uh, <laughs> snow is good. So, so when you do you have a road closure, do you or your staff ever stay up on the mountain? Do you have anywhere to accommodate them? Uh, no, no. NDOT's really good. And When the road's closed to the general public, we still generally have access for key personnel. So okay. there, there is an old apartment on the slide side that occasionally folks will stay at, but not really. We're, mm-hmm. we're not as isolated as Kirkwood, and we don't face the same kind of considerations that they do with access to the top of the hill.
1: So you wound up in
0: Mount Rose after a
1: long career elsewhere. Take us back here, Greg, where did you grow up? Did you grow up skiing?
0: I did. Yeah. So my family moved around quite a bit in my early childhood. I was originally from Russia, born in Moscow, but we immigrated to the United States in the early nineties and ironically lived in Davis, California for the first year. So my first day on snow was actually a boreal. So kind of full circle, but we moved fairly quickly to Knoxville. So I spent from fourth grade on, I grew up in, in Knoxville, Tennessee. And, you know, skiing was really important. To my family's life primarily my dad really credit mm-hmm. to him for sparking my love of skiing he learned to ski in the soviet union and really took a lot of ski trips one of my favorite stories about him was that he was uh, working at the university at the time the first copy machine was invented or you know introduced or whatever and at the time he would go ski in the carpathian mountains quite a bit but they used paper tickets instead of mm-hmm. lift tickets so him and his buddies got a hold of these tickets and made a bunch of copies with the copier and we you know <laughs> skiing for for free so (laughs) he kind of sparked the love in me and you know our family would always take a trip out west whether to west virginia or somewhere in colorado to go skiing every winter so did you ever ski in russia growing up i did not no no we left i was about three years old so
1: so you ski at boreal then you're you're skiing around knoxville tell us about skiing in knoxville what's that like
0: you know, there's one skier in Tennessee called Ober Mountain and about five or six on the other side of the range in North Carolina. You know, a lot of people don't realize, but the Appalachian Mountains actually get taller as you go further south. So mm-hmm. even though it may seem kind of weird that they're skiing in Tennessee or North Carolina, you know, Tennessee's top elevation was 3,600. There's a couple of resorts in North Carolina over 5,000. So that allows for, you know, snow making decent coverage. Ober was very interesting in a lot of, in a lot of Different ways. Gatlinburg is the gateway to the Smoky Mountains, which is the most visited national park in the country. And Gatlinburg is mm-hmm. also within a day's drive of half the U.S. population. So it's tourist central. And the resort was, um, it was a great experience and is a plethora of different things to do. There's a tram that goes. From downtown Gatlinburg up to the resort, it's 2.1 miles long. And then at the resort itself, you know, 600 vertical feet. There's a giant indoor mall with multiple shops, restaurants, and indoor ice skating rink. There's a zoo there, uh, mountain coaster, alpine slides. Basically, they only shut down for one week a year. Um, Oh, wow. The skiing there, you know, as you can imagine, it's it's variable, right? Um, Sometimes it rains, sometimes it snows, sometimes... There's not a lot of snow, but ultimately it was a great learning experience and it was skiing at the end of the day. So I felt lucky that I was getting to do it.
1: So you grew up skiing there and then eventually ended up working there. Was that your first job in skiing, Greg, or did you branch out and work elsewhere and come back to Ober?
0: No, I actually started at Ober as a volunteer ski patroller as a junior in high school. So I was 15 Mm. years old. You know, I wasn't paid. My first job was at Wendy's when I turned 16. But ultimately, skiing kind of through high school as a volunteer, and then turned 18, joined the paid staff on patrol there and started working a little bit for ski school as well. Tennessee was interesting in that our ski school was a concession. So I was able to work Mm. 40 hours a week on patrol and then go help ski school as well with the longer operating days. We were open, you know, 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. So you would get 40 hours pretty quickly. So, yeah, that's kind of where my career started. I went to the University of Tennessee while continuing to work at the resort and yeah it's kind of started progressing from there
1: so you take us through that progression greg up to you know you were there for 10 years so you started out on patrol and ski school and where were you at when you left
0: so it's kind of you know interesting how it all evolved ultimately patrol and ski school to start with and then started working a little bit with the marketing department in the summers it's going to sound really corny but we had a a road show that we would go on in the southeast uh, with a couple of other gatlinburg attractions like lumberjack feud would do a a lumberjack competition the Mm -hmm. aquarium was there and we'd go set up at malls we'd go set up like at the cincinnati baseball stadium we'd go down to florida And our part for Ober was we had a tubing slide that would basically build out a scaffolding and then chip ice. So let people tube in the parking lot. But then we also had a ski deck. So if you remember, it's kind of, uh, I don't know how to explain it. It's basically a trailer of a carpet that spins. And if if you remember ski ballet from back in the day, there's Uh a a lot of transferable moves. So we would go and um, do ski demos and tube in random parking lots. So (laughs) that kind of got me exposed to a little bit of marketing and kind of some more leaders within Ober. And yeah, I graduated college with a degree in economics, did not want to work in a bank, and was fortunate enough that the uh, train park manager um, got another job and the owner offered me to run the train park at Ober, even though I had no business being in the park, nor did I know anything about it at the time. But that was a full-time year-round gig. And you know, as okay. folks know, that's really hard to get your foot in the door that way. So kind of started doing parks, events, social media, that transition to a lot of slope maintenance. Uh, we didn't have a team that took care of the slopes. And in Tennessee, as you can imagine, everything grows very quickly. So there's a lot of summer maintenance that needs to be done. And that kind of get led to getting to know the maintenance guys. We, uh, we cut a slope in Tennessee. That was kind of my first big project, Yeti's Run. It got us up to 10 trails. So from a marketing perspective, I was really stoked that we were in double digits from a trail count. And yeah, that kind of led to helping with the mountain coaster install. I eventually became a manager on duty, so kind of had the chance to oversee operations a couple of days a week. And, yeah, really just spent four years in that kind of role. um That was what was great about Ober was that we were small enough that you could really stick your nose in everybody's business, mm-hmm. and that led to a lot of good things for me, but also some challenges. But it was always something that I kind of wanted to learn more and see what else I could do so yeah, I just kind of kept progressing through the management cycle there at Ober. So were
1: you eventually
0: general manager at Ober? No, no. I ended uh, as a train park and snow sports development manager. So kind of the story went, I knew I wanted to do more in the industry. And I remember going to the NSA conference in Nashville with the team. And it was interesting because I was coming in like, oh goodness, there's gonna be all these big wigs and leaders from these big mountains. And you know I get to be a part of it. And the realization quickly hit that nobody knew who the heck we were or that there was even a (laughs) mountain in Tennessee. And so kind of realized that, hey, if I wanna continue progressing in the industry, I need to do more, right? So it wasn't enough just to have the operational background that I did. So my wife and my parents actually convinced me to go back to school. So I did a nights and weekends MBA program at the University of Tennessee and kind Mm -hmm. of got the business side more in tune. And, you know, at that point, Ober had a very solid management team in place. And I knew that to progress, I probably had to go elsewhere. So that's where I started looking for work and ultimately was hired as the GM at Paley Peaks in Southern Indiana by Peak Resorts. Yeah. So Paley, Paley
1: Peaks is, uh, as you mentioned, it was one of 17 ski areas eventually owned by Peak Resorts. So certainly everyone in the industry was familiar with them and, and that got you into the big time and on the stage. Talk about that time working for Peak Resorts. What did that company do well? What were their challenges?
0: really grateful for the ownership and the leaders at Peak Resorts um, to even give me a chance to begin with. Right, I was 27 years old. I was a trained park manager from Ober Mountain, and to be given a chance to run a ski area such as Paoli was a big leap, and I think I'd did just enough to convince them that I could, even though probably, mm-hmm. you know, certainly at the time I was flying by the seat of my pants more than just a little bit. Um, but yeah, you know, Peak did a lot of things well. Um, at the time, we were the only other publicly traded company in the industry next to Vale, but we were still a family-run business with direct lines of communication and visibility. You know, uh, Tim Boyd was our CEO. His kids were in uh, various leadership roles. You know, I reported directly to Jason and Josh Boyd and really learned a lot from, from those guys, you know, for peak bread and butter was snowmaking. Um, That's kind of where everything started for us and built that out aggressively and marketed and branded ourselves as making more snow and having better conditions you know the business model is frankly brilliant you know uh, folks want to ski right they live in big urban areas maybe not necessarily next to ski areas so the story kind of goes that Tim Boyd came out to Homewood of all places with his wife on a Christmas vacation and saw the amount of people skiing in the rain and Mm -hmm. thought that you know hey I have a golf course outside of St. Louis with just about as much vert and I bet we could do the same thing. So it's really, uh, you know, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps kind of a story. Started in 82 at Hidden Valley. They built Snow Creek in 85, operated those two ski areas until eventually acquiring Paley Peaks in, I think, 97. And from there, it really took off. So. Business model, like I mentioned, urban skiing. We did a lot of good things, I think. You know, we were in the business of affordable skiing, really leaned into kids' programs, night operations. We had a really strong after school program. I think, you know, right before Vail acquired us, Boston Mills Brandywine in the Cleveland market had over 20,000 kids participating every week. You know, we had homeschool programs, we had college deals. I think we did a really good job introducing people to skiing. And then after acquiring snow time, kind of rolling out the peak pass. And that was really cool. You know, it was a multi-mountain product, obviously. But one of the, I think the big wins coming out of the Peak Pass was the Drifter Pass, which was marketed for 18 to 29-year-olds. And that's really something I'm surprised that the industry hasn't really picked more up on is Kind of discounting it for that age bracket, you know. There's a lot of senior deals out there, but frankly, that's the wealthiest demographic, and right. you know it's a bit counterintuitive to be discounting for those groups and not necessarily making sure that younger people have a way to ski. So you know, a lot of good things happening there, and certainly had a lot of challenges too. Right, um, operating in the Midwest and the East is tough. Uh, weather-driven every year is different from a weather standpoint, which led to you know inconsistencies with capital funding. And as we were growing, you know, kind of experiencing the same challenges as any other business, but overall really successful business and model. And, you know, ultimately wouldn't have been purchased by Vail Resorts if it wasn't. And I think the Boyds really understood their customer and what made the ski area successful.
1: So you were at Paoli, went to Hidden Valley, and eventually ended up at Atitash. At what point in there did Peak sell the whole portfolio to Vail? And did you see that coming? How did you react when you heard that?
0: Yeah, it was a certain interesting time. So uh, at the time with the acquisition, I was at Hidden Valley and we were building a zip tour. So, you know, in hindsight, I probably should have known something was coming because Hidden Valley was also our corporate headquarters. Um, the corporate office sat right above the ski area. Actually, it was in the Boyd's hmm. grandparents old home. Oh, wow. So we didn't have a big corporate team, right? But there was about 10 of them. And with building a zip line it was interesting that we opened the zip line in May of 2019 and found out that we were being sold in June of 2019. And kind of oh, in okay. hindsight. There was a lot of silence around the zip line opening, which I thought was strange at the time because, you know, really big project Mm -hmm. that took two years just to get through planning and zoning. Yeah, ultimately, it was kind of interesting how it went down. We got an email, I believe, either from Tim or from Jesse saying that we'd have a conference call at 5 p.m. on a Friday. And we... We'd never really had a conference call at that point, right? This was pre-COVID, so a lot of just direct communication back in the day. So, yeah, yeah. I kind of remember getting home, sitting on the couch, dialing in and listening. You know, we, we weren't really sure what was going on. And, you know, Tim just kind of came out and said it, you know, we, we were selling to Vale, and that the news was going to be announced on Monday. And here's the run of show and the game plan. So, yeah, I think I had no idea. I was in shock. Um we were, you know, the opposite of VR in a lot of different ways. And yeah, it was interesting. I think I remember living, you know, we were living in St. Louis at the time. So I think I walked to the neighborhood 7-Eleven, bought a case of PBR and sat down, and that's how I processed the news. <laughs> so you had some time to process it, and with that happening in the
1: summer, obviously it was a little while before winter ramped up. Talk about that transition period, Greg. And and obviously, you know, in 2019, none of us knew the storms hanging over the horizon and there were a lot of problems coming ahead, but, but that initial transition period before COVID happened, what was that like? What went well? Where were there maybe some rough patches? Just talk about transitioning from an employee of peak to an employee of Vale and and how the companies handled that whole process.
0: Yeah, it was really interesting and eye-opening in a lot of ways. You know, I think in full fairness, just to call out is I've never been a part of an acquisition before. So this was mm-hmm. my one and only time kind of transitioning. So yeah. I'm sure that folks that have done it more probably knew what to expect. But, you know, for all of us at Peak, we were we were really blind and had no idea how it was going to go. Vale called the process integration. So it was really changing our business model to fit the veil business model right so you know i think anybody you would talk to would admit that there was a lot of challenges and a lot of misses and a lot of wins too so mm-hmm. it seemed initially that there wasn't much desire from vr to understand our operating model and kind of you know despite having 17 ski areas in various markets it was basically nope like let's let's change you to fit our model and we're going now mm-hmm. so That part was interesting to see. Ultimately, yeah, it makes a lot of sense from a business perspective. There's synergies, there's economies of scale that kick in, but there's also the people side of it, right? And that really hurt. Um, We had to separate a lot of folks that were instrumental in getting peak resorts to where it was. So kind of right off the bat that, you know, that frankly sucked, you know, felt a lot like we were talking out of both sides of our mouth in the sense of, hey, it's going to be better. And yeah, you're no longer part of the team. You know, we got through that, and ultimately, there's a lot of things that Vale does really well. And I learned a lot from that company. You know, the commitment to health and safety is really admirable, the focus on talent development, equal opportunity that's kind of the bread and butter. But, you know, again, it felt like there wasn't really an adaptation of the business model. So a lot of it was like trying to get a uh, square peg into the proverbial round hole. Mm. And then COVID hit, right? So things got even weirder. And that's where I think we kind of got to see a lot more kind of behind the curtain. You know, like a lot of businesses, we had a furlough, a decent amount of employees, so... Every resort was left with just like a core team, but the business side of it didn't stop ultimately. So, mm-hmm. you know, and operationally things changed as well. Um, my role changed. A lot of things that were kind of under my purview and the peak model were no longer rolling up to the GM. The Vail model is really operationally focused. They want the teams on the ground to focus on executing and, you know, the marketing, the finance, the accounting, the IT, the HR, all of those things kind of got centralized. So it made things challenging to have everybody marching in the same direction to the beat of the same drum. Mm-hmm. Things got better eventually, right? And things are still getting better. I think it just takes a long time for a big ship to pivot. And, you know, I think a lot of the struggles that we saw at former Peak Properties over the first few years of the acquisition were kind of a result of that failure to fully understand the operating model of of peak resorts and kind of how it all fit and it's been you know frankly it's been great to see the the transition and kind of the writing of the proverbial ship towards the end of last season and this season
1: when you say they didn't DeVale didn't understand the operating model of peak resorts are, are you talking about emphasis on snow making are you talking about something else what, what, what specifically were they missing with these smaller midwestern mountains?
0: You know, I think just the the fundamental kind of breakdown of, hey, how does this mountain get open? How do we stay open? What does everybody do, right? With Peak, we all wore a lot of different hats. Like at Hidden Valley, you know, I'd be making snow during the day with the day guys. I'd be pushing snow sometimes. I'd be selling tickets at other times. So it was, you know, I use a pirate ship analogy quite a lot in that ski areas are a lot like pirate ships. We have a lot of different employees of all different walks of life, and we ultimately all get a cut of the proverbial revenue at the end of the day but it takes everybody from all different kinds of walks of life to make these resorts work especially in urban areas where there's not a background for skiing that was one of the things in the midwest where people worked at ski areas because you know paoli that was one of the best employers in town it wasn't necessarily because they loved skiing or had a huge passion for the industry it was because we were good employers so i think a lot of little things like that added up to some of that misunderstanding
1: So let's look at Paoli in particular for a few minutes, Greg, because Vale has done a very poor job with Paoli Peaks, and it's only been open a couple of dozen days each of the past two seasons. What was Paoli's general operating schedule when you were running the resort, and what were the idiosyncrasies of that place that someone needs to understand in order to make it run well?
0: Paoli is a very interesting mountain. It's it's an upside-down mountain to start with, Mm -hmm. so that creates a lot of challenges that you may not necessarily think of specifically that the entire base area is kind of your learning terrain, but it's at the top of the mountain. So Mm. it's get affected by wind. I've never seen so much snow melt overnight anywhere as I have at Paoli. (laughs) I think, you know, after that first winter I was there, we planted like 40 trees just to create some sort of windbreak. And, you know, Mm -hmm. frankly, I only spent one season there and we didn't have a great season either. You know, we opened Mm -hmm. early December and we closed the Monday after President's Day. It was just challenging from a snowmaking perspective. Paoli's got some interesting quirks to it. The water supply is at a lick Creek, which is kind of the creek that runs directly below. But that's susceptible to seasonal flows. So a lot of times you're not able to fully maximize your pumping capacity just because you don't have enough water coming in. But yeah, ultimately... It's really challenging to operate in, in Southern Indiana and, you know, perfect North over towards Cincinnati does a really great job and their location, they, you know, it would drive me crazy at Paoli cause we wouldn't be making snow and perfect's making snow and they're just three degrees mm-hmm. colder than we are because of the way the cold mm-hmm. air settles in that valley. So certainly a lot of challenges there and you've got to be really smart from a snowmaking and grooming perspective, minimal grooming, keep your piles. Um, you got to really pull out all the little tricks. In the book to keep that resort operating. And you know, when I was there, we were open till 3 a.m. every Friday and Saturday. Mm. So that was a way to mitigate some of the weather challenges was by increasing operating hours.
1: From a snowmaking point of view, what was Peak's approach? And then what was Vale's approach? In other words, when you were at Hidden Valley running that resort under Peak, did they just say do whatever you have to do to keep it open? And then how was Vale's approach different if it was?
0: Uh, It wasn't really different. You know, I think with Peak, there was a lot more involvement from my leaders from the Boyds in snowmaking. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd be talking to them on a nightly basis, frankly, like, where are we, where are we making snow? What are we doing? What do we see? Uh, with Veil, they were a lot more trusting in the sense like, hey, y'all know what you're doing and go do it, you know. I think when we first acquired, I had a pump go out at Hidden Valley and was able to get funding from Vale to replace it for snowmaking. So I think, yeah, Vail certainly understands the importance of snowmaking. But kind of going back to the people side, a lot of these older systems have a lot of quirks and you need that institutional knowledge to fully maximize production. So that was kind of, I think, the bigger gap. It wasn't necessarily that Vale didn't want to make snow. Or was no, I've never been told not to make snow, right? So I think the goals never really changed. There's just a the people part of it that suffered so you end up running at
1: which is a terrific scary and actually just recently hosted brandon schwartz bell's current gm at attach on this podcast a couple of weeks ago and lots of changes at that ski area but first of all how did the chance come up to lead at and what appealed to you there and then what did you arrive to find what were the challenges at attach when you arrived
0: it was Actually, very quick and serendipitously i got a uh, I got a call on a Friday afternoon asking to meet with my boss at the time Chris Sorensen, who's now the general manager at Keystone and Bobby mm-hmm. Murphy, who was the GM at Stowe now is at Beaver Creek but was overseeing Aditash and Wildcat as part of his responsibility of stowe and yeah, on a Friday in October of COVID year, they called me and said that John Lowell was retiring and that there was an opportunity for me to go to Adatash if I wanted to. And I had to tell him on Monday, one way or the other. So, <laughs> you know, for me, I think we were certainly happy in St. Louis. Um, my wife had a great job. You know, she had just gotten done with graduate school there. So we were, we were fairly settled in St. Louis, but knew ultimately that to kind of get to where we wanted to be, we'd have to kind of continue proving ourselves. So yeah, I jumped at the chance of Adatash. I'd never been to new hampshire before never skied new england but i knew of the reputation of the mountain i kind of had a lot of background knowledge from the peak days of what was going on up there and you know for me it was a chance to prove myself on a bigger stage so you show up and what'd you find? Oh, it was really interesting <laughs> in a <laughs> lot of ways. You know, ultimately when I came to the mountain, the first realization was that our senior leadership team was basically decimated, right? Between the, the transition period from peak to vale, with the separations and then people leaving for other jobs. Uh, as you're well aware, Mount Washington Valley has a high density of ski areas. So there's no shortages of opportunities and it's you know fairly common for folks to kind of jump around. And at the time, Wildcats, had a new GM, Josh Clevins, and, you know, thankfully we had a new mountain manager at Aditash, uh, Deirdre Riley, who agreed to move from Park City back East. And she came in about, I want to say a little bit over a month before I did. Mm -hmm. And so we really kind of hit the ground running, trying to rebuild both the team and the mountain, right? There's no secret, I think, that the mountain had a lot of deferred maintenance, And it was a huge challenge to kind of get going. You know, as I mentioned, you know, Wildcat had a new GM at the time, Josh Clevens. Um, He came from health and safety space um, and, you know, had worked with Vail for a number of years. And he was really instrumental in helping me understand kind of the politics and who to ask and, you know, when to say something, when to keep your mouth shut and kind of help me navigate that process. But ultimately, yeah, the first season was super challenging, right? I uh, think I lived at the Grand Summit Hotel for about five weeks while I was looking for housing. My wife ended up coming out and joining me around Thanksgiving, so life got a little bit more settled, but it was the COVID year, Um, so getting there, figuring out how we were going to operate, and then... You know the biggest challenge frankly came down to labor um had mm-hmm. relies heavily on j1s for most of the frontline positions including lift ops you know food and beverage rental etc cetera, etc cetera. and with kind of the borders being closed we had no labor help so i think that first season we had 16 lift operators for nine chair lifts oh my gosh uh we oh. had two people in rental i think we mm-hmm. had Maybe half of our food and beverage outlets were only open, you know, same kind of thing down the line of snowmaking employees, same thing in ski school. So, you know, there was a lot of factors that kind of came into play. I think ultimately the the J1 labor shortage was huge. You know, you saw Vail pivot really hard on wages recently. And that was really great to see because in New Hampshire, that was our biggest struggle. We were paying significantly less than the Vermont resorts were. Um, we weren't paying overtime at 40 hours at the time. So there's a lot of factors that led to, you know, the quote unquote domestic employees choosing the Vermont properties to work for Vail instead of us. And yeah, it was super challenging. You know, as you know, you probably I think the town of Conway probably still hates me because we weren't able to spin every single lift that they wanted. We had to make hard choices, right, ruthlessly prioritizing terrain over just more lift spinning. I probably, you know, myself, my mountain manager, my patrol manager, my lift manager, we were all working lift positions that first year. So, you know, that was tough. Not being able to be transparent with the public about our short staffing was really tough as well. That was something that, you know, the powers that be wouldn't really let us leverage. Social media wouldn't let us kind of, hey, this is what's actually going on, right? And we're doing the best we can. So a lot of frustration, as you can imagine, a lot of questioning what we were doing that first year. And as a result, you know, the team really rallied. We formed such strong bonds. We were committed to what we were doing. And really, it's kind of like that football team mentality, right? Like, almost middle fingers to the outside world and let's get our job yeah. done. Let's put our heads down and we're going to, mm-hmm. we know that we can do something at least. So it was the most challenging time of my career, but also the proudest just to see how that team rallied. And, you know, it's really cool still to see today that the core team, you know, the senior and middle managers at Adetash are all still in place. And, you know, as you heard from Brandon, they've made a lot of good changes. And that's really cool to see that team rewarded. And, you know, ultimately Atatash is an awesome mountain, right? It used to be the red carpet ski area. Um, That's kind of the reputation. And we couldn't frankly even get close to that level of service. So that was certainly frustrating. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I ultimately learned that there's only so much you can do. And sometimes, you know, in my role specifically, you've got to be able to take it on the chin and you've got to be able to deflect that pressure off of your team. So that's kind of where the light bulb moment went off on me. And I was like, okay, Let's try to redirect some of that anger and let's let the team members kind of try to flourish. But I think without Deirdre's commitment to the mountain, her knowledge of the enterprise, um, you know, there's a lot of blood, sweat and tears there. A lot of great people, you know, Nate Waterhouse and ski school. I mean, they they ran three lifts basically every day. Nate Jones with the patrol, their patrollers were helping on lifts, you know, the lift manager was doing the best he can. So ultimately, you know, I'll always have a special place in my heart for Atatash and specifically for the people there, because I know that we did the absolute best that we could in extremely challenging circumstances.
1: I mean, that's, it's a hard position to be in, Greg. How much of that, in your opinion, was the world was a tough place to be in for a while and How much of that was veil and maybe growing too fast and trying to do too much with really bad timing?
0: Yeah, I think life is really mostly about timing, right? And between the different business model, the acquisition of the resort, and COVID hitting, it was frankly a perfect storm, you know. Looking back on it, yeah, if we'd gotten the wage initiative pushed through before the 22 season or the 21 season, you know, would it have helped? Sure, but would it have moved the needle to us being able to operate a full footprint? Like, no, there was tons of people that weren't working at that point in time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, yeah, I think it's not fair to, to kind of push fully the blame on veil vale, but I think there's a lot of truth in what you said with growing fast and ultimately then a storm hit right and you didn't have your hatches buttoned down how much
1: did that experience push you to mount rose are those things related at all or did the opportunity come up and you said you know what this is actually a really good fit for me just t- take us through that transition and whether that dire circumstance at aditash contributed to that or if it's all a bit of a coincidence
0: no i think i think it's all a bit of a coincidence you know for me I really appreciated what Vale did, you know. Certainly for my career, I learned a lot, and I also knew that, you know, probably my long-term future wasn't with that company. Um, you know, at the time that I left Adatash, there was only two other GMs left from Peak Resorts, right? It was mm. Jake at BMW and Russ at Hunter. So, you know, looking around, the writing seemed to be on the wall, and you know, for better or worse, I'm sure it wasn't intentional, but it felt like we were we were outsiders in the company. We were we were the peak guys. We weren't the veil guys. We didn't come up in Keystone with everybody else and know everybody and get opportunities that way. So for me, I think that was certainly a part of it, but ultimately it came down to family. My wife wasn't able to find work in New Hampshire and we weren't really happy there. That kind of strained a lot of things and really started questioning what I was doing as a whole, um, really looking to potentially even get out of the industry because, you know, family's not happy. I'm not happy. Like, well, you know, what are we doing here? And then ultimately the job at Mount Rose came open and I knew that if I didn't apply and if I didn't at least try to make that transition, I would forever regret it. Right. And then when I met the ownership group here, I experienced the mountain. I feel very lucky because the approach to people, the approach to mountain operations, the approach to the community from, you know, my boss and the ownership group here at Rose is exactly how I feel and how I want to lead and how I kind of want to spend my time. So once those two things kind of matched, it was a no-brainer, and it was really tough to leave Aditash when I did. And hopefully I'm, I'm at a place where I can stay for a long time.
1: Had you skied Mount Rose before interviewing for the job there?
0: I had not, no. I, I knew of Mount Rose, uh, just... Frankly, from peak days and us dreaming about other acquisitions that were close to urban areas. So, you know, ultimately knew about Mount Rose and kind of the location, but no, never skied here and didn't know a whole lot. You know, I'd ski Tahoe, obviously, but hadn't made Mm -hmm. it up to the northern part of the lake. So
1: humor us on this. Describe Mount Rose from your outsider perspective because there's this really interesting class of mountains in the west to which Mount Rose belongs. And these are ski areas that are not destinations they're not on the epic or icon pass yet they're bigger than pretty much everything outside of the region including anything in new england and mount rose falls into that category so sort of places like sierra tahoe and sugar bowl and places like mission ridge in washington or white pass and Washington. a lot of these are, are now on the indy pass but they're big ski areas and if you're used to the east they would certainly seem really big and really awesome but yet they're not places that people necessarily seek out if they're from outside the region. So tell us about your impressions of the place and, and just about the place as this person who has worked outside the industry and the the kind of attributes this mountain offers.
0: I think the first impression of Mount Rose is we sit right above Reno. So wherever you are in Reno, whether you're at the airport, whether you're driving around downtown, whether you're in South Reno, you can see the shoots and you can see the slide side of Mount Rose. So Mm -hmm. that's really cool. The topography here is wild, you know, we sit at 8260 right at the base. And then on the slide side, it's 4,000 vertical feet straight down to the Washoe Valley, yeah. which is actually skiable Seriously. in the winter. And this past winter, uh-huh. I think some of our locals got over 40 days making that run from the top of Mount Rose all the way to the valley. <laughs> so it's amazing. You know, at first glance, you're like, wow, this is big. This is awesome. You know, the shoots are breathtaking. They're intimidating. Driving up the road, they dominate the landscape. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you have Tahoe views on top of that. The snow quality, that's certainly something I was blown away with. Off-piste, on-piste, kind of consistent snow. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, the lift infrastructure, I think there's a lot to be said for smart investment over the years. You know, we have two six-packs out of both base areas. That's huge. Um, The mountain can absorb a lot of skiers, and even on the busiest days, we don't have lines when I first got here in February of 22, the owner told me to come visit on President's Day Saturday. And I was like, Kurt, you got to be kidding me. Like, you want me to just go stand in lift lines? Like, I've done this before. You know, you're not going <laughs> to fool me. And yeah, my wife and I were floored. We didn't wait more than eight minutes that day anyway. Wow. So, coming from places where 30-minute lift lines are normal, and, you know, I Mm -hmm. spent a lot of my career telling people, "Well, this is how it goes. Like, what are you upset about? (laughs) So, to kind of see the other side of the coin was really awesome. And it was, I'm like, wow, okay, so it can be done like this. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the terrain variety that we have at Rose, we've got a really great beginner pod that's kind of off to the side. And then really nice blue runs, really steep runs. The slide side is wide open, more of a bowl. The tree skiing is phenomenal. We have a lot of old growth forest on the slide side. So you're skiing between two and 300 year old trees, which is really unique. And yeah, you've got Lake Tahoe on one side, you've got Washoe Valley and Washoe Lake on the other side. Frankly, it's just, it's a spectacular mountain Mm. and the skiing's great.
1: All right, so we'll come back to Mount Rose in a second. Greg, I, I don't want to jump off of Aditash before we talk about that Summit triple lift, which Vale Resorts is actually replacing or already replaced this summer with a high-speed quad. That lift is not quite open yet as we record this, but it should be open this year. So talk about that Summit triple and the impact that you think that high-speed quad will have on skiing at Aditash.
0: Yeah, certainly. So, you know, during my time at Aditash, mine my team's efforts were focused on really barking up every single tree we could at Vale. And redoing our capital proposals probably over a dozen times to justify the upgrade of both the double-double and the triple. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with the double-double, we were basically taking parts off half the double-double to keep the other half going. So that was a pretty obvious roi there and there was a lot of a lot of kind of things that led to it you know we had a really small maintenance team i think at the time that i got to Adatash, between Adatash and wildcat we had five lift mechanics so that mm-hmm. ultimately contributed to a lot wow. of maintenance being outsourced um, i think i do want to take the time to shout out tim feaster um, he saved our butts at Adatash and him mm-hmm. and his crew kind of getting our lifts up and running and Ultimately, we knew even from the peak days that, you know, the triple had a bad reputation, and I certainly heard about it at every single corner in town when I was there. (laughs) And I think for us, I think the final straw for the triple was um, right before the 22-23 season. Yeah, right before that, we had an arc flash in the motor room of the triple about 10 days before opening and ended up having to replace the drive. And, uh, we were, I think we opened, we were scheduled to open on a Friday in December and we were low testing the triple that Thursday night before. Mm-hmm. And we got done low testing, I think at nine or 10 PM and opened the triple to the public the next morning. So there's, <laughs> you know, a lot of things behind the scenes. Like I mentioned, we were you know, doing our best, but ultimately kind of not able to get ahead and you know there's a lot of things with that triple i think one yeah the right time was long but it was long in comparison to other lifts you know when you're going up to triple and you're getting lapped by the yankee that just makes it feel mm-hmm. even longer even though right. most places you know even in tennessee i think our black lift was like an 11 or 12 minute ride not a big deal right, right. but ultimately really important from the guest perspective i think at that time, we were the only mountain on a multi-pass in New England that didn't have a high-speed lift to a summit of over 1,000 vert. And I think all those things kind of made the business case strong. You know, really huge props and shout-out to both Deirdre and Brandon for getting the Summit Triple approval across the finish line. And, you know, a lot of things that we did during my tenure at Atatash were kind of in preparation for that eventual replacement. That was the main reason that we reestablished snowmaking on Wilford's was to justify the replacement of the triple because now all of a mm. sudden we could tell Broomfield that we had multiple routes off the summit. I think one of the misconceptions about Aditash there is yeah, the summit is a little bit crowded, but it spreads out really quickly and those top trails can absorb a lot of people. So, you know, I never really had the capacity concerns of a high speed four pack on that mountain. And once I got here to Rose and saw, we only have two ways off of our six packs and it works just fine. So that that made me feel a lot better about, about the operation there. And ultimately really super pumped to see that lift going in. And I can't wait to go back to New Hampshire and ride it. So you
1: get to Mount Rose and it's a completely different world where those upgrades for the most part have been made. And we'll talk about Lakeview in a minute, but you know, none of that happens by accident. These buildups of lift infrastructure and this careful planning over time. And you don't get to no lines on a President's Day Saturday without very deliberately working toward that. So that is a credit to the Busser family who have been part owners of Mount Rose since 1971. Greg, tell us about their Busser family and their vision for Mount Rose and how that's helped develop the mountain over long-term.
0: Yeah, certainly. I think we're we're very lucky to have the Boozers as our majority owners. And, you know, their, their family's been involved with the ski area since the 60s. Um, you know, mm. Fritz came over to the United States selling Heineke boots. And they were the very first ski boots that had buckles instead of laces. And that's kind of how it all started, you know, as far as stewards of a mountain and an environment goes, uh, we couldn't be luckier to have them. Their commitment to employees is first and foremost, and it all kind of starts from there, but also to the guest experience, really driven to make sure that we have quality terrain, that we maintain affordability, and ultimately people come first for them. And you know that really shows, I think, between their commitment to the mountain and their investment in the people, It translated to both what you're seeing from a lift infrastructure perspective, but also on the people side. Most of our senior managers have been with us for 20 plus years, and we've got really strong number twos with almost just as much seniority. So I think that emphasis on both people and place has really driven the success of Mount Rose. So
1: they've owned the place for a long time, and it sounds like they're committed to it. They did, however, put Mount Rose on the market For some time, ultimately took it off the market in 2017. Again, I appreciate that you've only been there for a couple of years now, but what can you tell us about why the Boozer's considered selling Mount Rose and ultimately why they kept it?
0: So I think as a lot like a lot of other family-owned businesses, you know, Fritz was kind of getting to the end of his career and ultimately wanted to make sure that they did the most responsible thing. So. I think putting the resort on the market was kind of a test case of like, hey, can we get what we think this is worth, right? And when the answer was no, it made a lot more sense to maintain it within the family and to get the next generation online. So right now we're kind of in the midst of that generational transition. And the next generation of the family is really excited and involved in the operation and wants to see things continue as they are. And I think from a financial standpoint, it made more sense to keep Operating the ski area versus getting a one-time lump sum payment. You know, the landscape has changed a lot around Tahoe
1: since 2017. And Vale already owned its three resorts at that point. But Altera and the Icon Pass didn't exist yet. And Palisades Tahoe was still independent at the time. What's your sense now from working with the family over the past couple of years here, Greg? Do you get a sense that they're committed to keeping Mount Rose independent or is it still for sale if the right check comes along?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I really appreciate the opportunity to kind of be able to clear the air on this topic. And the answer is no, we're not for sale. And I don't think there's a there's a certain sum of money that they're waiting on. It's been made clear to me that the commitment is to continue operating. And our business has grown significantly from 2017, right? So our pass holder base has increased, our visitation has increased. You know, coming into that time period, we were just coming off of a record breaking season. Well, we just had another one. So as the business kind of continues to scale and to grow I think it makes more sense for them to keep it and yeah I think it's one of those things like I think the same question could be asked of Aspen right or Jackson like are they going to sell if the right price comes along and the answer is probably no because these ownership groups are in it for different reasons and that's kind of where we stand out I think there's a certain amount of pride in being independent and showing folks that things can be done a certain way and be just as successful
1: so on the other side of Lake Tahoe, Homewood has really struggled, and that's a beautiful mountain, and it rises right off the shores of the lake. Their unique struggle is that they are south of all the traffic going to Palisades Tahoe and North Star, and it essentially effectively cuts them off. So that's one independent ski area that is, has been a direct casualty in one way or another of the Mega Pass of the, the switch to mega passes it sounds like mount rose is weathering this really well and in fact maybe benefiting from it uh, how much is is that the case how much is it also just reno growing you being the closest ski area to there why do you think mount rose has been doing so well since just you know 2017 wasn't that long ago
0: you know you're spot on about your assessment you know with the mega pass influence and not necessarily the pass side but the ticket pricing strategy has really helped us we're over a hundred dollars cheaper for a full day lift ticket than Palisades is, right? We're like ninety or eighty dollars cheaper than Heavenly than North Star. One, that's allowed us to raise our prices and mm-hmm. still maintain affordability. And I think Tahoe is probably the highest density ski market in the country, if not one of the highest densities. And people have choices when there's 18 resorts within an hour and a half. And so I think we see that, right? We see the benefits of when other places start getting busy on a Saturday that folks can come to ski at Rose. So we've been able to pick up those customers, but if we didn't provide a great experience and a great mountain, we wouldn't be able to retain them. So there's also that part of it to where we're continuing to grow as Reno grows, but ultimately pulling the levers to manage our capacity and to control the on-snow experience is really important to us.
1: So it sounds like you have a good commitment to independence from the owners, the boozers, and you have great support there. You also stepped into a really great situation, Greg, and this is one that You don't often get in the ski industry, but you took over for Paul Senf, who had run Mount Rose as general manager for 30 years, and you actually got to work with him in a transition period of several months. So talk about Paul and his legacy and how he helped you during that transition period to understand the culture of Mount Rose.
0: Paul was a big part of the growth that we experienced over the last 30 years. And, you know, he was instrumental to driving the necessary infrastructure improvements that we're benefiting from today and continuing to build out the mountain. One of, I think the key aspects of his legacy is hiring and retaining great people. You know, as I mentioned Mm -hmm. before, our management team is extremely tenured and experienced. They know the mountain in and out. They know the business in and out. And I feel very fortunate to kind of come into a position to where I can really elevate the team and not necessarily focus on rebuilding. And you know, ultimately I think having the overlap of Paul was great because I wasn't thrust right into operations. I was able to kind of be incognito, really get a sense for the community, get a sense for the mountain, get a sense for the employees and kind of understand the business dynamics before kind of getting thrust into, into the leadership role. I'm really thankful for him laying the groundwork and for being able to spend some time together and really understand the business from his perspective. It helped me crystallize what needed to be done to take the next steps.
1: So I imagine one of the things he helped you understand was how Mount Rose is special. And like I said earlier, it's a big mountain by New England standards, but you are competing directly for attention with Palisades, Tahoe, and Heavenly, and these really huge mountains that are flagships on the Epic and Icon Passes. From your assessment, now that you've worked there for a little while, I mean, what what does make Mount Rose stand out? What makes it special? Why would a hardcore skier go there? when they could go to Heavenly for less money if they got a season pass, for instance.
0: Yeah, I think we've got a lot of uh, unique attributes that really distinguish us from the other mountains. You know, we've really harped on our elevation, which translates directly to snow quality. You Mm -hmm. know, the hill layout itself, we don't have a whole lot of traverses. We don't have a whole lot of trails crossing. We have really well laid out pods of where we're not mixing ability levels. You know, our lift fleet, I think that's something to continue to call out. You know, three high-speed lifts. We have 14 seats out of the base area on the roadside. So that all leads to, you know, less lift lines. The acreage is, you know, we have 1200 skiable acres, but the mountain skis a lot bigger than that. There's some hike to terrain. There's some really nice tree spots, just a lot of exploring that you can do. And it's big mountain skiing close to home, right? It's right. It's 20 minutes from Reno, but it's big mountain skiing. And a lot of things too, I think is our consistency. You know what to expect every time you come to Rose. Um, It's not a question of what lifts are spinning. It's not a question of what the grooming is like. I think our guests know what Product to expect, and hopefully we're delivering and matching those expectations. And the other side of it is we've got a different vibe, and that's something that everybody picks up on. You know, from our lift attendants to our employees and F and B to really anybody on the mountain, it's different, and we really tap into. The friendliness side of it, but also kind of still that offbeat, you know, it's just skiing at the end of the day. You know, we're not rocket scientists here. It's just skiing. And combined with the events that we do, um, the local focus aspects, and I think all of that really sets us apart. You know, there's not one thing in particular, but I think the combination of them all really differentiates Mount Rose.
1: So you mentioned the density of ski areas. One of them is actually right below you, and that's Sky Tavern. And that's kind of a unique place, and we could talk about that in a moment. There's old trail maps online showing actually a lift connection from Sky Tavern up to Slide Mountain. And Slide Mountain is the side that Zephyr Express is on now. And and that, from my understanding up until the mid 80s, was a separate ski area from Mount Rose, which is off the Northwest Express and Lakeview Express side. So take us through, if you can, Greg, the history of Mount Rose and how all these different ski areas eventually became their modern footprint of you have this big Mount Rose above and then a little sky tavern below.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting, the history of skiing in Northern Nevada. Um, before I jump into it, just a quick plug for our website, we redid our history page, not this nice. past summer, but the summer before. And I want to go out on a limb and say that it's the most comprehensive digital archive of any ski area in the country. It's really neat. So check it out there's pictures there's newspaper articles and you can actually fact check what i'm about to tell you on there so (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so as i said northern nevada skiing you know it's really interesting the the long history of skiing in this area our roots as Mount Rose they actually date back to 1939 when Wayne Paulson opened Mount Rose Upski at the current location of Sky Tavern. At the time, the highway 431 that's where it ended, so that's kind of where the ski area started. Um, you know, interestingly, in 1941, Paulson relinquished ownership of Mount Rose Upski to take out an option and develop what is now Olympic Valley at Palisades. So, mm-hmm. it kind of, you know, intertwined legacy there. Um, You know, ownership transitioned to Keston Ramsey and in the 1950, a lift was built from what's currently Sky Tavern to the slide side of Mount Rose, which is that ringer chairlift. You can actually still see a lift tower off the side of 431 where it crossed the road at the time. And in, yeah, in 1953, that's when Reno Ski Bowl at Slide Mountain opened. So there's a lot of different names, but basically... At that point, it was one resort. There was the lodge at Sky Tavern, and then there's the Reno Ski Bowl kind of interconnected. And interestingly in 1954, the very first NCAA skiing championship was held on slide. And it's almost full circle because skiing is now back at the University of Nevada after about a mm-hmm. decade long absence. And Mount Rose is the official training venue of the ski team. So they're actually out in the mornings uh, and practicing on our mountain, which is really cool because we've got pictures from the 50s of the UNR ski team riding the Ringer. So really full circle there. But kind of back to Ramsey, um, he continued operating Sky Tavern and the Reno Ski Bowl until selling in 1959. And, you know, he was also really instrumental in the early stages of cutting trails on the Mount Rose proper side of Mount Rose right now. So one of our runs, Ramsey's, is still named in his honor. And I think the rumor is he actually cut that trail or helped cut it. Oh, wow. So kind of really linked there. And then the next sale really marked that first split in ownership. So Reno Ski Bowl became Slide Mountain in 1962, and it operated independently from that point on from Mount Rose up ski which was at the current location of Sky Tavern. The next chapter in the story goes as the ownership group that was operating Sky Tavern began developing Mount Rose main side and Mount Rose Development Company was formed in 1964. And that's when Mount Rose Resort opened, which is now on the main side of Mount Rose. So at that time, there's basically Sky Tavern and Mount Rose where we are, same company, and the slide side, different company operating. And in 1968, our ownership group sold the current Sky Tavern property to the city of Reno for really two purposes. Um, one was to focus on expanding the operation at Mount Rose, obviously. And the other was to protect the Junior Ski Program, which was established in 1948. And that's enabled it to become the oldest community-based to ski program in the country. So that's really cool kind of community ski area now. You know, interestingly, the story goes on. The two ski areas slide and Mount Rose really operated mostly independently for the next 20 years. There was periods of common lift tickets to where you could buy one lift ticket to go over to the other side. But mostly there was what was called an iron curtain between the two. And hmm. their stories goes, if, you know, one skier ended up on the other mountain, they wouldn't even <laughs> shuttle them back or do anything for them <laughs> besides yelling at them. So... I don't know how true that is, but it sounds good. So ultimately in 1987, Mount Rose combined with Slide Mountain uh, Mm -hmm. ownership groups and was able to unify under the Mount Rose name. And basically at that point, you know, work continued. Uh, We added new lifts, snowmaking in the early 90s. A lot of summer grooming was done on the slopes to kind of get the trees and the stumps out of there, cutting new trails. 2004 is when the chutes opened, which we'll touch on later. But you know, that's 1000 feet of some of the steepest inbound lift service skiing in the country with runs up to 55 Mm -hmm. degrees, which really put us on the map. And um, yeah, we've continued to kind of make improvements and upgrades since then, but certainly a really rich history of skiing here.
1: The thing that surprised me most as I was researching this was that lift up from
0: Sky Tavern. Do you have any idea when they took that lift out and why they took it out? I I don't off top of my head. I'm sure we've got it written down somewhere, but I'm guessing it has something to do with the two companies kind of splitting uh, with Sky Tavern going to the city and then Slide Mountain being operated independently.
1: What's your relationship like with Sky Tavern today? And for folks who are not familiar with that, Operation. I, I know you touched on it a little bit as I Learned to Ski place, but what can you tell us about Sky Tavern?
0: It's a great mountain. You know, it really, it's 600, roughly 600 vertical feet. I think it reminds me a lot of, a lot of Midwest ski areas and they do a great job there. You know, I have a ton of respect for Bill Henderson and the whole team at Sky Tavern. They're super passionate about getting kids into snow sports. And it's it's a really unique vibe there. There's buses of kids from Reno come up on the weekends. And everybody at Sky is a volunteer. And it's just one big community, right? So... It's, it's really cool to see that. And we're good neighbors. We help each other out. You know, it goes both ways. And I think we're both committed to growing skiing and snowboarding in the northern Nevada area.
1: So Mount Rose is actually looking to expand back down in that direction after all these years. There's, and anyone can see this on your current trail map, there's a proposal for a skier bridge to go across the highway to a new terrain pod, which essentially would be right above Sky Tavern and right below Mount Rose and and sort of make the two touch. If I'm looking at this correctly, tell us about this terrain expansion. How much terrain would there be? What's the vertical over there? And, And what would be the point of this really to, to expand Mount Rose down?
0: That area, um, you kind of refer to it as across the street because it's across the highway, um, but it's really interesting. So the, not to get too deep into the weeds, but back in the 70s and the 80s, there was an attempt from Powder Corps to build a ski area on that side called Galena mm. Ski Area, and wow. it ultimately it got kind of bogged down through you know regulatory approvals, concerns about the environment, et cetera, et cetera, so that never really happened. But that area, Atoma, used to kind of house a cross-country center, And ultimately, when the ski area kind of development went belly up, the land got turned over to the Forest Service. And, you know, part of our approval process to be able to lease that land from the Forest Service actually involved setting aside thousands of acres as permanently designated wilderness on that side. So the Atoma Pod is roughly 150 acres, and it's all low angle intermediate terrain. It's beautiful forest. It's really wind protected. There's not a lot of vert in there, you know, maybe 400, 450 feet vertical, but basically long trails, and that's going to kind of fill the gap for us. We have great beginner terrain off the Wizard. We have a great progression from the Wizard to the Galena Chairlift, where it's slightly steeper greens, but we don't really have a good variety of the low blue type trails, and that's what we're really envisioning Atoma being, is kind of that link between, Hey, I learned how to ski, but I'm not quite ready for the face runs and ultimately kind of provide a different skiing experience with it being set in the woods a little bit more. It follows a really ridge line that's right below Mount Rose proper. So the views are going to be really beautiful in there. And yeah, we see it as a great complement to kind of what we just did with the Lakeview express about, you know, extending it up and creating that lakeside green run off the back. So it's kind of the almost the missing puzzle piece in the full ski experience here at Rose.
1: What can you tell us about the proposed lift in there? It looks like it'd be at an angle station and go up over the bridge, back up to the top of Wizard. What sort of lift are you thinking there? Would there be a mid-station unload at that angle?
0: You know, we're still kind of working through the exact details. I don't think that they'll have one single continuous lift as indicated in those plans. Mm. What we're looking at is a lift that will recirculate in the atomopod and then some sort of return i'll say mechanism back um we haven't settled exactly on the design you know one thing that we're looking to avoid is wind impacts so maybe putting a chairlift in the air right over a bridge doesn't make a whole lot of sense but yeah. we're looking at you know carpets we're looking at platters you know, I was pulling up plans of the old Cranmore Ski Mobile of all things yeah. as an idea of how to get people back. So that part right. we haven't quite dialed in, but what we're envisioning is basically a way to ski the pod and then a way to get back and the way you would, you'd be able to ski into it. So it'd be downhill on the bridge to get to Atoma and then some sort of return mechanism to get you back up.
1: How close would that actually be to the Sky Tavern terrain? Is there any possibility of an interconnect for, say, someone who wanted to take their kids skiing down to Sky Tavern? But had a Mount Rose Pass?
0: Yeah, you know, it is going to border the Sky Tavern property. Um, the bottom of the proposed Atomo lift is kind of proximate to where their train park currently sits. But no, we don't really envision any kind of interconnect. You know, as I mentioned, Sky Tavern is in, in essence a private ski area. And what's really cool with them is that the entire staff kind of watches over the kids. So there's not really a good way to introduce, quote unquote, the paying public into there. So, you know, and that's kind of nothing that we're really looking at, nor how to think what we consider in the short, you know, any point in time. It's really two separate ski areas, not really a good way to ski between them.
1: So let's go back to Lakeview for a minute here. As you mentioned, that was a new lift, a new high-speed quad introduced last year for an old triple chair. If you missed the old triple chair, you can go ride it at Dodge Ridge because it's, <laughs> it's running down there now uh, for California Mountain Resorts Company. But just overall, Greg, how happy were you with Lakeview Express how much did that change the experience of being at Mount Rose and and what can you tell us about because you reconfigured a bunch of trails as well so what else went into this package along with the lift
0: you know as you mentioned the biggest change with the new lift configuration was we basically kept the same lift line but we moved the unload significantly up the hill and you know one what that let us do was open up true lake views as you get off but it also let us access the back side of that unload which is a little bit of a ridge and that's where we cut a new trail called the lakeside trail and it's a green run basically now it connects to around the world and so you basically have a top to bottom green run now where we didn't have it before and it really changed mm. a lot of the dynamics of the skier experience because now there is no longer that fear of progression, jumping from Galena to Northwest with that, you know, steep traverse that I mentioned earlier. Now there's this protected pod and you know, we reconfigured the lift to be a lot more wind resistant than previously. So this past season, I think we had eight or nine days where we weren't able to spin Northwest because of wind, but we were able to keep Lakeview going. So that was certainly Uh awesome. And I think a lot of our pass holders were really surprised on how much they ended up using it. Just with the afternoon sun hitting that area, what we saw was really a, a progression towards Lakeview to where we were initially potentially concerned that we wouldn't be getting as much, you know, visitation on that lift midweek, but we actually saw the exact opposite. And between doing the late Friday nights on that lift and then the access to the green run and the lake views, obviously it's um, it's been a smashing success. Do you spin every lift every day or are there some that you,
1: don't run on weekdays.
0: No, we spin every lift every day. So you have a pretty updated lift
1: fleet now with Lakeview. Mount Rose has three modern high-speed lifts. Then you have your fixed grips. Galena dates to 1984. Shooter, which was relocated from Zephyr in 2004, dates to 1989. And Wizard relocated from Ponderosa in 2015, dates to 1993. So not super old, not running lifts from the 60s like a lot of scarios are still. But long-term, Greg, as you think about these what's your wish list? Do you you think that we would upgrade some of these before the expansion? Is the expansion your big priority? Kind of take us through your thinking long-term on what you think should be upgraded next.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that we did last summer, so again, summer 22, sorry, not 23, that's worth mentioning is the three fixed grips all got a pretty much a complete upgrade. So new electronics, new drive units, new communication lines. So Ultimately, refurbishing those lifts, we feel good about keeping them going for for a while longer. And yeah, I think the next step is ultimately the Atoma lifts. And then from that point on, you know, I still have a dream of doing a rope toe park in the West. I don't know how, how well that will be yeah. received, but it's on the wish list. <laughs> So we'll see. I think, you know, the we feel good about where our fixed grips are and the experience that they provide with the upgrades that we've done. So kind of focused in other areas and hopefully get back to those in you know 10 plus years, that kind of range.
1: I hope you do do the rope tow park in the West because I've been banging this drum for a while. I took a Midwest tour last year, could not believe these high speed rope tows. They can move, I'm told, up to 4,000 skiers. Per hour, which is more than a high-speed six-pack and move. Where on Mount Rose do you think would be a good place for rope-toe park?
0: <laughs> oh, geez, that's a loaded question. Um, I, you know, we, <laughs> there's a lot of spots that we could potentially do something. We're really trying to reinvigorate our park program right now. We brought back Double Down Park last year, which is a big mm-hmm. jump line right proximate to the Zephyr lift. I think in some plans that I've seen, that was a potential location for a terrain park lift would be right there under mm-hmm. Zephyr. Um, you yep. know, we currently have kind of our beginner start park on Ponderosa. Um, we certainly have power over there to where we could power something up. So, yeah, certainly looking at different things. But being so close to Reno, we do want to lean back into parks and kind of provide that full experience, whether you're a free ride person in the shoots, whether you're a ski racer, whether you're a park kid, or whether you just want to lap groomers, uh, we want to make sure we have something for everybody.
1: Why do you think those parks haven't caught on? Because to me, they're brilliant because not only do they move a lot of skiers per hour, they declutter some of your alpha lifts because you don't have the park kids riding them. They're fast and they're cheap. They cost like 50 grand compared to, you know, a new fixed grip lift is going to be several million. So why do you think that these haven't caught on out West when in so many ways, they would
0: solve a lot of the problems that the West has. Yeah, that's a great question, Stuart. I, I frankly don't know the answer. Um, you know, I can opine and potentially some of that, you know, destination demographic, um, with potentially the the egotistical view that, hey, we've got enough skier terrain, so go ski instead of hitting those boxes and rails. I don't know. I'm sure there's a lot of factors, but I'm kind of right there with you as seeing that as an opportunity. As
1: part of that overhaul of your fixed grip lifts, did you add safety bars to Shooter?
0: You know, we we do not have comfort bars on Shooter, um, and it's something that we're certainly looking at for the future. I think when um, kind of asked around why, it kind of came down just to the um, expert riders that are on that lift, but not to say that that's not Something that's important for us. But, you know, I kind of share your same observation about the use of bars here in the West. You know, it's kind of interesting. Everywhere I've been has been different, right? In the Midwest, uh, we didn't have a single comfort bar on any one of our chairlifts. And then obviously in New England, you get yelled at. And then in the West, it's kind of a cowboy mentality that it's really hard to break for some reason. You know, even for our Northwest lift, you're riding a six pack and it crosses the chutes. So it's every bit of, you know, a couple hundred feet down. And you get some strange looks when you're like, Hey, can we put the bar down, please? <laughs> so yeah. yeah, it's certainly a cultural thing and something that we're going to continue driving to hopefully improve on. But yeah, I think adding bars to, to shooters, certainly on the list.
1: So when I was skiing around Tahoe last year, both the Vail Resorts and Palisades Tahoe did mandate the bar use for employees. That's something Mount Rose does as well. Yes, we have that same, same mandate. So do you, I mean, how do you approach this? Is it, is it, because I realize if you tell people they have to do this. That's just not going to work. So how do you begin to change that culture? And and I realize it's probably not something you're as focused on as other, other priorities you have at the mountain, but is there something you've seen that works, like an approach that works to urge folks to
0: maybe if not do it themselves, be less of a jerk about it when other people want to do it? <laughs> it's a great question. You know, I think I almost, I almost say it's a generational thing to where I think the opportunity is to focus on kids and young adults to make sure that they're mm-hmm. putting the bars down. So when they get older, they're also doing that. You know, it reminds me a lot of the helmet thing where, you know, 20 years ago, nobody wore a helmet and now everybody yeah. wears a helmet. And, you know, you still hear the vocal people that are grumbling, but they're certainly usually of a certain demographic to where I think the same thing is kind of with the bars as we continue maturing and progressing that some of that old school ego approach will go away in time.
1: All right. Well, if you still got a big ego, you can feed it into shoots. chutes. This is a monster piece of terrain. Tell us about the chutes, Greg, for, for folks who might be coming to Tahoe to look for that adrenaline rush that they're going to get at Kirkwood or Palisades. Tell us about this chunk of terrain, which has been open for about 20
0: years and what they'll find in there. To me, it's absolutely legendary terrain. Um, it's a thousand feet of sustained vert, 16 name shoots between 40 and 55 degrees, lift served in bounds and ultimately indescribable on a powder day. You know, last year was top notch. We had multiple days with feet of powder in there and it was, you know, you could hear the hoops and hollers from, from my office really have... Of, folks enjoying the shoots and opening them really put us on the map you know we we got a full page spread in the la times as a result and you know i think the big difference with the chutes compared to a lot of other mountain steep terrain is just that sustained vertical you know it's not just 300 feet of a couloir that you have to navigate with a long run out it is, you know, if you don't have the legs, you're you're in for a challenge. So right. I think um, it's certainly, you know, for me having skied multiple places, it's it's certainly world-class. Do you do
1: any tree cutting in that terrain or is that just all natural?
0: We, we have a prescription from the Forest Service of how to maintain that terrain. So that is part of mm-hmm. the ski area property that sits on Forest Service land. So the approval process was fairly lengthy. And as part of that, there was a lot of logging that was performed in there. And, you know, we currently kind of work hand in hand with the Forest Service based on the recommendations on how to maintain that terrain in a sustainable manner.
1: Is it mostly beetle kill at this point? Is there another of a fire mitigation plan you're following what, what do you decide what stays and what goes how do, you, how do you work with the forest service to determine that
0: yeah i think a lot of it you know it has to do one with the, the species of the tree what's going on And there's also obviously the beetle that's decimating a lot of the forest but the white bark pine has just been listed as endangered so there's a lot of different kind of you know just depends on what the tree is doing but ultimately from a fire standpoint yeah we, we want to remove underbrush and kind of mitigate it that way and ultimately we have a responsibility to maintain lift lines and from a safety standpoint want to take out dead trees that could potentially fall on people so it's um it's actually kind of cool because with us being split between forest service and private property we're able to use a lot of the same forest service prescriptions on our own property and really manage the forest in a responsible way and it's kind of cool you can see you know compare the health of our forest to mount rose proper across the street it's kind of night and day how those two look with a managed forest versus just letting it all kind of go right now
1: so as you said when you're driving up the road the chutes dominate and the funny part is that was out of bounds terrain for a long time but ski patrol was in fact managing it i, I would imagine to keep avalanches off the road so talk about ski patrol's history with the chutes and how they finally made that skiable terrain
0: yeah certainly so as you mentioned we've had a long history of performing avalanche control in that area specifically for keeping the road open Uh, we have a great partnership with the nevada department of transportation i've had one for decades uh, to where we do we still actually perform avalanche work along mount rose highway for ndot and then, you know, the, the history of the chutes goes back a long time. It's ultimately been skied and poached for a lot of years. And it kind of all started back, as I mentioned earlier, with the Atoma expansion, with the Galena Resort that Powder Corps was going to build across the street. The chutes actually used to be private land um, belonging to the Redfield Estate, which is kind of a wealthy landowner group here in northern Nevada. And as part of the Galena creek development, they actually swapped land with the forest service. So the chutes was included in that land swap. So that's how it came to be forest service land. And then when the development fell apart, obviously it, it all just kind of stayed. So we began work to open the chutes in 1997 and a lot of hurdles, you know, we had to jump through the forest service. And then as you can imagine, there was just some mind boggling logging work that had to be done in there. It was all done with hand crews. <laughs> So, you know, wow. that terrain is super steep in the winter and like, I would not walk it in the summer. So I I can't imagine <laughs> how that was even done. And, you know, once it opened, it was a hit. It put us on the map. You know, Shane McConkey came out for opening day. We still got a, a YouTube mm. video on our history page with him in there. And yeah, I mentioned the LA Times did a full page spread and, you know, we became a legitimate freeride destination. I think our past sales jumped quite a bit that year when folks realized that we had terrain, you know, on par or better than KT-22 at Palisades. So we were able to get a bunch of business that way. And as that terrain is developed, it's provided a great opportunity for development for skiers and riders. And, you know, it's really cool to see this year for the first time, one of our homegrown riders, Colton Schaff, is going to be competing on the Freeride World Tour, and he grew up skiing the chutes. So, we're starting to see that kind of fully come full circle. And it's, it's really cool because that terrain ultimately is legendary. And like I said, it's world-class it's propelled one of our riders to be on the free ride world tour.
1: So that was a big terrain expansion that gave you some legit expert terrain. It sounds like you're looking for an intermediate expansion. Is there anywhere else conceivably that you could expand Mount Rose? Is there any potential for terrain expansion, for example, on the lake facing side or anywhere else? I know a lot of times with a forest service lease you have a lease permit boundary which is different than the ski area boundary itself so are there any potential future expansions looking a generation down the road
0: you know never say never but we're we're fairly locked in so with going across the street for Atoma you know we were able to get the permit to use the Atoma land but the rest of that um space which initially was targeted as the galena creek resort has been set aside as permanent wilderness so that's not kind of on the table for us and then towards the lakeside it's actually really interesting um the top of the mountain goes into a section called the meadows which is this beautiful really high alpine meadow that sits kind of in a little bit of a valley and then from there you go straight into the lake but you know Mm -hmm. that area is actually tribal land for the washoe people and Mm -hmm. it's it's really held in high esteem by them and so that's not something that we're we would want to go either so we're fairly locked in
1: so you have a lot of terrain you're close to the airport it seems like mount rose has all the ingredients to be a destination resort if it wanted to be one nowhere currently to stay on the hill you are zoned for about 600 potential units or 400 units excuse me what is the potential to build up the bed base at Mount Rose and
0: ultimately could the place become a destination resort is that something you think about You know the the history of Mount Rose is kind of interesting we used to have lodging at the lodge itself so the Mount Rose main lodge the entire upstairs used to be hotel rooms about 50 of them Yeah so we have had lodging there before and then as the ski area grew you know we kind of clawed back that room for operational purposes so you know at a certain point in time we were looking for Development um, as far as lodging units goes. And that's not off the table, but in the short term, it is. You know, I think long term, never say never, but that's not something that we're currently looking at. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The main reason is just the proximity of Reno and the amount of lodging and there's still so much affordable lodging in reno Uh, you can get a weekday night at a casino for about 30 bucks a night so there there's that aspect of it but also as i mentioned you know in your previous question we're certainly kind of running out of space a little bit and the area that we were originally targeting for building lodging is we're going to be building a tubing park there next summer Mm-hmm. so yeah. opening tubing and then it's going to have a kind of like a mid-mountain lodge that's going to be accessible by skiers also so it's going to be this really cool confluence of tubers and skiers and just winter culture in one spot so we feel like we can you know generate a little bit more revenue with the tubing facility as crazy as it sounds than than building lodging again kind of that same philosophy of choosing long-term returns over a one-time payment.
1: Is there any way to get up there from Reno other than by driving a car? There is not.
0: So at times there's been shuttle services from the casinos to us. I've been working with the county trying to get bus service reestablished from Reno to Tahoe, which sounds absolutely crazy that there's not bus service from reno to tahoe but there's right. not and you'd be blown away by the amount of reno residents that don't go to the lake for various <sighs> reasons um but you know okay. cost and access is a big one so the public transportation side of it is is certainly something that we're looking at and probably wouldn't surprise you that there's been people with ideas of building a tram or a gondola or whatever that have come up and around every year so We're currently no, and I think we're focused on expanding public transportation to both us and to the lake, just to level the playing field for access.
1: Humor me on this tram thing for a moment. What what would that look like? What is the distance, the air distance, if you draw a straight line from
0: Reno up to Mount Rose? Oh, geez. Oh, it's a great question. I don't know. Five miles, maybe? Something like that?
1: So feasible. I I mean... This is
0: something that
1: could take quite a few cars off the road if you do it in the right way.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, no, without throwing shade, I think if we were in Europe, this would have already been done. So
1: (laughs) (laughs) all right, Greg, let's wrap up today with the talk on passes. Montrose offers a really good season pass renewal discount, $150. I believe you offered this again for 23, 24. Correct me if I'm wrong. But talk about that discount for Loyalists and why that makes sense for Mount Rose.
0: Yeah, no, we're certainly doing the discount again. It'll be a little bit, I think in the $180 range this year as kind of our past Mm. prices mature. To answer your question i'm frankly i'm surprised that more ski areas don't do the same right you want to build customer loyalty you want to reward that loyalty and ultimately you're you know increasing the lifetime value of the guest if you get them to recommit so we do a huge uh, season pass renewal party in april where we invite all of our past holders to come up and renew uh, we usually do between 20 and $30,000 worth of giveaways. And that really kind of drives the spring pass sale for us, but it also kind of feeds back into that, you know, the branding and the culture aspect of us being a social capital of sorts where people come up and see their friends and, and enjoy the vibe. So I think, yeah, for us, that's a huge part of our business model. And I think something that we'll certainly continue doing.
1: So Mount Rose is one of the few ski areas that I know of that would likely be welcome on just about any multi-mountain pass. It would be great for Epic Pass and there with its proximity to Reno would be great on Icon Pass as Overflow for Palisades Tahoe would be great on indy Pass for obvious reasons. You joined me at a panel of fellow general managers down at Savannah at the NSA ski show in May, and we talked about this, but that session was not open to the public, nor was it recorded. So if you don't mind, can you reset this for me? Why has Mount Rose not yet joined any multi-mountain pass?
0: So, you know, we're we're lucky to be in a market and location where we can kind of continue to distinguish ourselves. I think the best way to put it is we're in a deeply saturated multi-mountain pass market and remaining independent kind of allows us to do two things. One is to kind of control that guest experience and to maintain a good, comfortable capacity, both in our lodges, out on the hill, in the parking lots, et cetera. Kind of what I was alluding to earlier with the no lift lines but it actually makes us stronger from a business perspective because it differentiates us further from our competitors in such a dense region. And, you know, philosophically, uh, we believe that if you want to ski at Mount Rose, we want you to do business with us directly. We want you to interact with our team. We want you to experience the difference. And so I think it comes from a desire to control that skier experience and to make sure that we're not making headlines with road congestion, with parking, with all the other negative headlines that you kind of see coming out is it allows us to stay away from that. Do you think that we
1: ever could see Mount Rose on say the Indy Pass or some other similar product?
0: Uh, not, not, I don't think so. Not in the short term, at least. Uh, we certainly, you know, basically every single pass has come at us in these last few years with offers to join. And, We've politely declined and it all comes back to that identity. And it's something that sets us apart. You know, it's not just that we're not on any mountains passes. We also don't have any reciprocal deals with any other ski area. And it's kind of, we want to remain fiercely independent and it really feeds into our brand identity. And I think it's something, well, I know it's something that our pass holders and customers really appreciate it because I hear on a daily basis.
1: If folks do want to try Mount Rose, because I I think what the passes do is they give you basically a menu. And so you can go try places like Mount Shasta and Mount Ashland and Red Lodge and maybe some of these places that you wouldn't have otherwise. But you actually have some really good lift ticket deals, some two for Tuesday type things. I I think you do have a two for one one day of the week. So take us through these and leave us with this today, Greg. If, If someone wants to try and come out and try Mount Rose, what's an affordable way to do that?
0: You know, we have a lot of great deals, as you mentioned. We do try to protect the Saturday experience for our pass holders. But besides Saturday, we're basically doing a discount every day. On Sundays, we have a local special. If you live you know, within a two hour radius of Mount Rose, California included, you get a $99 adult lift ticket or a $49 mm-hmm. kids lift ticket. Nice. Mondays, we do hospitality slash service industry Mondays, just because of our proximity to Reno. It's $69 lift ticket for service industry folks. Tuesdays is two for Tuesday. Tomorrow, it's two lift tickets for 119 bucks. Thursdays, we do a ladies day special. And then Fridays, we do a Friday afternoon special. And then every day we have a fly discount. So if you show us your boarding pass, if you're flying in the day or if you're flying out that day, we'll offer you a $69 lift ticket. So that's a great way for folks that are coming in to experience some of the epic or icon resorts to check out Mount Rose. And, you know, we continue doing dynamic pricing to make sure that our lift ticket rates are affordable. You know, as I mentioned before, we're $100 cheaper in Palisades. We're $80 or $90 cheaper than some of the other players in town. And that really sets us apart from the affordability standpoint. So to your point, there's no reason somebody can't visit Mount Rose. And we certainly feel that we have a very strong value proposition for what we offer with the terrain.
1: Love it. All right, Greg. Well, I can't thank you enough for all your time today. I know it's the busiest time of the year for you. And I know I took a lot more of that time than I said I would. So thank you very much for that. I can't wait to get out there and take some turns with you again, we, we made a few runs at Avitash, so let's do it again at Mount Rose. Uh, and I wish you the best of luck with this winter.
0: Yeah, definitely. thank you for having me on Stuart. It was a pleasure.
1: That's Greg Gavrelitz, general manager of Mount Rose, Nevada. Greg, that was terrific. My wife, who edits the podcast, must have said a half dozen times as she was going through it, man, this guy is just fantastic. He's so candid. I 100% agree. Again, thank you so much for that, Greg. And thank you all very much for listening. We are winding down 2023. I've got two more podcasts in the can. Berkshire East owner, John Schaefer, and Whiteface general manager, Aaron Kelly. Both of them were absolutely outstanding, and I cannot wait to deliver both to you. But that's it for this year. Then we will pick it back up in mid-January, as I have the leaders of Sunday River, Big Sky, Buck Hill, Teton Pass, Camelback, Mount Bachelor, Sugar Bowl, Mission Ridge, Bluewood, and Arapahoe Basin scheduled for the first half of the year. Canada, stand by, as I've also got episodes on the docket with Mount St. Louis Moonstone, Red Mountain, and Panorama. To get new episodes of the moment they're live, please visit StormSkiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter. And paid subscribers receive podcasts seven days before everyone else. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon.
0: The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.